This is Fayette Forward, where we discuss trails, transit, city planning, and anything else that's on our minds. Our goal is to keep Fayetteville moving forward in a positive, inclusive, and intentional way that benefits everyone who lives in this great city in the Ozarks. You ready? Come on in. Hey, it's Nick with Fate Forward. I'm here with my wife and co-host Meredith, and this is part two of our awesome interview with Britton Bostick, Fayetteville's long-range planner. If you haven't caught the first part, I highly recommend you do because it's chock full of really great information, and this section now is going to be no exception. So I hope you enjoy, and let's get started. Like As a long-term planner, what do you see as the future of Fayetteville? need to pull up my comprehensive plan. I'll just read off the <laughs> So we really emphasize, um, this is this is challenging. This is, um, it's, it's really hard to have vision without it immediately being a challenging thing. But our vision for Fayetteville is a place that, um, I'm going to, I'm going to use some like alliterated, very plannery terms, but it's <laughs> compact, complete, and connected. Um, and so that's part of the conversation I was having just this morning. So what does compact, complete, and connected mean? It means that um, things are, are built with uh, density that supports a variety of activities so that, you know, sometimes people will say, well, it would be so nice if I just had a grocery store in my neighborhood. It'd be so nice if I just had this certain thing, i.e. not a gas station. Like most people are not coming to us and saying, it would be really great if y'all would put a gas station in my neighborhood because <laughs> they seem to be pretty good at locating themselves in neighborhoods, yeah. right? Like, you know, you don't have to go very far usually to find a gas station. And so that works out. But things like uh, grocery stores or things like medical clinics or things like uh, childcare or, you know, some of these other things, people are like, it'd be so nice if I did didn't have to drive so far or travel so far to get to these things, but those are so dependent on having enough people close enough to them that they're financially viable, right? So when we talk about compact and complete development, we're talking about the kind of population that can support these things that we don't want to have to go that far to get. And, uh, and then when we say connected, it's about building all of these different options to get there, you know, whether you're going to walk or bike or uh, take an Uber or take the bus or, you know, so we really haven't talked about a lot in this conversation is, is, you know, transportation via like bus or train or rail or something like that. So um, compact, complete and connected is really our goal. And so um, where that ends up really quickly grinding gears is that a lot of Fayetteville is, you know, either wooded or it's a steeper slope or uh, people very quickly perceive it could cause flooding issues or other concerns so that everybody who's there already feels like, well, this goal for, for you know, more densely developing in town is really going to be a bad thing for me because I'm going to end up with all these neighbors I didn't used to have. I'm going to end up with development really close to me that's going to disrupt the quiet and peace uh, of my neighborhood. And then it's also going to cause me a multitude of problems that could damage my property because now you're just going to flood me out because I'm downhill of this thing. And so you can quickly see that like that goal is like, oh, and now we're having like serious technical issues and concerns. But at the same time, our alternate for that and what so many cities have chosen to do and talk about, you know, Texas, this is a lot of places Texas have chosen to do is they expand for and further out and build uh, in a way that just like quickly gobbles up land. Mm -hmm. Well, that gobbling up of land also has negative consequences. It has positive aspects in that oftentimes that land is cheaper and you can produce housing for lower cost overall, but it doesn't mean that the total cost of that is going to be less in the long term. And that's where you really have conflicts between like what a city's goals is like the whole city might have a goal that might not be in the best individual interest, especially their pocketbook. So if you say, well, I want to be able to buy a house and the way that I can afford to buy a house is if I live in Farmington because housing is cheaper in Farmington, let, let's say in, in 
kind of my example scenario. The house is cheaper in Farmington than it is in Fayetteville. I can afford something in Farmington that I can't afford in Fayetteville. Therefore, I'm going to live in Farmington. It's going to be less expensive for me. Well, if we're focusing on compact, complete, and connected development in Fayetteville, someone living in Farmington but working or going to school in Fayetteville is like not accomplishing that goal, right? But that's the choice that that individual had to make for their own situation. And so those things are immediately in conflict. So as much as we might have this vision for not pushing further and further out into our natural areas so that those are able to retain kind of their supportive ecosystem services for us and the beauty that we enjoy, you know, in places like Mount Kessler, you know, or like on the edge of the city. And we quickly go, well, if you just plowed down all the trees on Mount Kessler and built over it, that would not, you know, not be something I think a lot of people would enjoy, but we need people to be able to afford to live places. And what does that look like? So, our goals are almost immediately going to have conflicts, but that's really something that we try to to not only try to encourage and try to facilitate, but we're also, I think, very actively involved in weighing the consequences of that mm-hmm. and saying, well, what are the negative effects and what does it look like to mitigate those negative effects? And as a person who used to spend an hour and 15 minutes commuting one way, um, for a distance that really didn't, you know, merit an hour and 15 minutes sitting in traffic on the road, those are quality of life issues that we don't wish on anybody. And so as much as, you know, oh, well, a lot of people would need to live Farmington or further in order to be able to do that. But that also is going to have some other effects in their lifestyles and, and in their resources that um, is not going to necessarily, it may be a net benefit to them overall, but there's going to be some aspects of it that are not as beneficial. And I'm not talking about people who like, they really want to live in the country and that's living their best life for them. I want land. And I also don't want all these building rules. And, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are left without, you know, kind of like our transportation systems, not talking about people who are able to make those choices to, to do things the way that they want to do them, but people who have fewer choices immediately available to them that we need to make sure they have more choice available. Well, and that was a perfect segue into my next question, which was public transportation. So are you able and willing to share just some of the future ideas about how buses, you mentioned light rail, or maybe it was trains, something like that? Trains, light rail, um, however you want to call it. Everybody loves a train, right? Yeah. Uh, I rode Amtrak when I was five, and it changed my life forever. Yes. They're just magical. Yeah. So magical. I feel like I'm going to Hogwarts. Right. (laughs) Or I've ridden Amtrak on the East Coast, uh, like from New York City to Washington, D.C., and like also just completely a magical, wonderful experience. Yes. And I think when you have those experiences when you're really young, it really shapes your perceptions of what those things are like Mm -hmm. versus I've never had that experience. It's like, Oh, you missed out because when I was 15, that train ride was great. So, (laughs) so there are so many things that play into that. And if I had a nickel for every time somebody told me we need a train in this town, um, I could be doing um, other things. I'd probably be like sports betting at a really unhealthy level. You're so good at this. (laughs) (laughs) Stay with us a little longer. (laughs) So, yeah, sport, sports betting me would become my, like, wealth-funded advice, and uh, y'all would only see me certain times of the year. But, <laughs> but no, more seriously, so uh, I think people know that there's uh, a sense of, like, convenience, certainty, liberation, and, like, all these positive aspects that could come from a really well-operating public transit system, right? Um, the convenience, the really low cost, all these things are, like, really positive. And then the notion of, like, being able to hop on, like, this sleek, clean, comfortable, smooth train from here to, like, downtown Bentonville for so many people is, like, I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot better than achieving that dream, totally. right? And so we can do that. We can absolutely do that, but we're going to have to do some things first before we get there. And one of the challenges that we have, and this is where I'm, I'm going to like get really nerdy on you guys and do some planner math. Bring it on. Yes. Let me tell you, this is not engineering math. <laughs> so don't don't confuse it. This is not math that engineers have done, that they do, that they sign off on, that they agree with or agree to. Um, this is planner math. It's a totally different kind of math. Still accurate, but it's planner math. So if you're going to do some planner math on this, Um, We know that to have transit-supportive densities, you need about 10 housing units uh, per acre. That's the very, very bottom threshold. And the reason I say that is because the same issue with the grocery store. Grocery stores, depending on the size, need like so many people within a certain radius of it in order to be financially viable. Transit needs ridership. Like it critically relies on ridership. 
transit is heavily subsidized and it kind of doesn't matter where you are. So it's really about the decision of whether to subsidize transit and how much you want to subsidize it by. So the university has a transit system, right? They have a transportation system that gets their students who are off campus, onto campus, and around campus, and all these things. Most universities do um, because it's a, it's a pretty effective way to serve the student population. So we've got Razorback Transit operating, and that has a very specific and clear purpose. I hear it works super well. I'm not a student, so I haven't ridden it. But um, so that's a good example of transit and it goes quite a few places in the city, but it also goes on like a fixed bus route. So it's very predictable, you know, where you can get on, where you can get off, you know, what the routes are and, and kind of what time they'll be there. But when you're not a university and you're kind of like having your own transit routes with buses, what do you do? Well, we start looking at similar things, but we really have to look at ridership. And for that, we have to look at housing unit densities and population densities and how close are people living to where that stop would be. And it doesn't matter if it's a bus or a train or some other kind of a trolley, some other kind of cool thing. You need people to ride it because if you're usually you charge a fee, you don't always charge a fee, but usually you charge a fee and that fee goes to help support, you know, how much it costs to do these things. And so otherwise you're relying on all these other subsidies, which like I said, you already do. But 10 people per acre is like the bare minimum. 30 people per acre is so much better. And so if you look in the city's 2040 comprehensive plan, there is a map one of the pages, I don't think it's too far in, and I don't recall off the top of my head which page, but there's a map that basically uh, shows the city of Fayetteville, and it shows some dots on it. And I think some of the dots are purple, and some of the mm -hmm. dots are green, and some of the dots are yellow. And so these are growth nodes. Mm -hmm. These are major intersections in the city that we have identified and kind of scaled and said, like, downtown is like a tier one. Downtown is like the most people, right? Mm -hmm. It's the biggest co concentration of people that both live and work there. And that's really important. And then I think up near the mall is like another growth, like uptown, right? Mm -hmm. Is another tier one center because it's like a concentration of people and businesses and jobs. Everywhere else is like a tier one or a tier two center, and they have lower concentrations. When you look at all of those tier centers, and you actually get down to focusing on like a half mile radius of those and you start to look at how many housing units and how many people are there, I have yet to see one outside of like the downtown or the university, like immediate area, where we're even close to that 10 units per acre minimum. So our big challenge is that we don't really in Fayetteville have the concentration of people living close enough to a stop that would get us what are called transit supportive densities. Mm -hmm. 30 people per acre is like really high above. And, and so some of them, even in, in what would be kind of like pretty dense areas just north of the university, we're a little under five units per acre. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, we're not like barely halfway there. So if you think about places where we might want a significant stop, so think about something like the Evelyn Hill Shopping Center. Because mm -hmm. um, you're thinking, oh, shopping center, and there's parking lot, and there's businesses and restaurants, and then there's neighborhoods right behind that, right? Or you think about uh, Fiesta Square, another shopping center mm -hmm. that is like, oh, major intersection. It's right on 71B slash College Avenue. This would be like a great stop, right? But if you look at the, the housing densities, you look at how many people live around there, it's like less than two per acre. Mm -hmm. If you take all of that land into account, and so... How do we get there? We are not there yet. Um, but that's some, you know, when you start thinking about how that connects, those are, that's like a really key piece. The flip side of that, which I've heard from some, some people argue, well, if you can somehow get the money to build out the train network and build the train stations, then the density will then be built around those stations organically. And I know that takes more money and time because you don't have the ridership at the beginning. But I wonder, is it a chicken egg thing where... You know, we don't have the density because there's no real reason to have the density. But if you suddenly had a way to get to downtown mm -hmm. or get up to Rogers or get up to Bentonville, then the density would then follow. And so it's kind of this thing of like you require the density up front or you say, well, if I build this, it will bring the density. And yeah. I'm curious what you think about that. So that's where understanding who the property owner and what their goal for the property is are really important. But what I would caution is that in a lot of these cases, you would be looking at wiping out existing housing for new, denser housing, multi-story buildings. Um, you know, we're talking about like a five-story apartment building that's pretty large with hundreds and hundreds of units in mm -hmm. it. So 
some of the challenge of that is we have neighborhoods really close, like single-family home neighborhoods, yeah. maybe duplex neighborhoods. And so then you're talking about, well, is that owner either willing to sell their property, willing to redevelop their property, willing to do all these other things? And a lot of times currently, currently the answer is no. And so people may not either be willing to take the risk that that uh, represents or we may be talking about actual neighborhoods instead of like just big parcels of land that somebody owns and it's just kind of sitting on waiting for the next big idea. If all it took was like a really good idea and really good intentions, we would already be there because right. we've got those. But it's a little bit more complex than that. So could somebody uh, like look at that coming in and assemble all these things and do it? Absolutely, yes. But I would say that we haven't seen the level of redevelopment activity along College Avenue, which has really, really high, like some of the highest traffic counts in the city. We haven't seen a level of redevelopment activity that even begins to get us to those densities on some of our most heavily trafficked roadways. And we're not seeing the housing come in. We're not seeing that like mixed use kind of development come in in the places where it's already making a lot of sense and that would also serve as a great transit corridor. And so... I just, I'm not saying it would never happen, but I find that to be a little bit challenging because I think there are just so many factors at play. It's never just one thing. It's usually a whole lot of things. And I think we still have a whole lot of things that aren't quite there yet. Sure. Well, in that vein, if someone did, say, identify Evelyn Hills or Fiesta Square, any of these these maybe older shopping complexes that are kind of car-oriented and there's a lot of space that could be leveraged. If someone were to identify that and go, oh my gosh, that's the perfect place to build dense housing, what would be their process for doing this? I mean, I know there's an owner, obviously, and it would have to be their decision. But how does all of this work for those of us who just don't understand any of this? Ooh, this is a really good question, too. So we'll go back in time a little bit again uh, to a time when I was talking about <laughs> you used to be able to drive down a highway <laughs> and you could pull right into a business parking lot and you could back your car directly from that parking lot into the highway. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so that's the important piece. All these parking lots that are between the street and the business, mm -hmm. right? So kind of these front-loaded. And that was so typical, right? Because it's convenient. It's efficient. Remember, we're in like go fast now. Cars and, and vehicles are the city and the future of the city thinking, right? So we have to make space for the cars because the cars are the most important. Also, post-World War II, cars were such a precious, like, thing to own, mm -hmm. right? Like, this is, like, people are really achieving financial success mm -hmm. in new ways, and they're able to display that by these, like, vehicles that they have that say, like, hey, I've made it. I've also, I'm working really, really hard at my job to be able to afford this, to carry my family around. And so that was really important. So we made space for all these cars, and those spaces still remain. And what's funny, too, is that uh, zoning in Fayetteville is not a new thing. We have a zoning map from 1970. So, like, zoning is, is kind of a, a, a longstanding thing in Fayetteville. In some cities, it's, it's not quite that old. So, for Fayetteville, we have a zoning map from 1970. And College Avenue, 71B, this is, like, a commercial corridor, right? Before that, um, this is kind of like an inside trick, but if you go on the city's GIS maps, there's like a, a general reference map. And then there's a button and you can change the base map and you can go all the way back to aerials from 1926. Whoa. And then there's 1941 and 1954. And so you can see what Fayetteville looked like, like live on the ground uh, through somebody flying over in an airplane probably um, from all the way back then. And what's funny is that you start to see more and more and more cars and more and more and more roads and more and more and more parking. But back in the day, there was like a long stretch of dirt road between Fayetteville and Springdale. And then over time, we grew north and they grew south. And then all of a sudden we're connected, right? But for a long time, it's like there wasn't a lot going on. And then commercial businesses started expanding out of the downtown. And so when we started zoning, when we started saying, hey, we're going to control land use, we did it at a time that people were very focused on what we call Euclidean zoning. And that comes from a 1926... I think it's 1926 Supreme Court case, uh, Euclid versus City of Ambler. And so that was kind of like the, the granddaddy of zoning court cases. And so it basically uh, kind of 
launched uh, this legal construct of zoning, which is like we want to separate uses. So commercial and residential, you can't go together. You got to be apart. Industrial and, and residential, you can't be together. You got to go apart. And that made sense because we're still like burning coal a lot of the times, right? You don't want to be having coal burning right next door to you. It's like horrible. Um, well, today we have cleaner technologies. Today, like we just have like kind of different ways of doing things. And so we're starting to say, hey, maybe these like really strong boundary lines between uses are not as necessary, or at least they're not necessary everywhere. So people can live and work and eat and shop downtown and that's all going to be okay together, right? But maybe we have some residential neighborhoods where we don't want all of that um, busy activity to happen. And maybe we have uh, commercial neighborhoods that we don't want industrial processes next to because it's not going to benefit everybody or lots of reasons. So all of College Avenue pretty much historically has been a commercial only zoning that doesn't allow houses. Mm. I'm finally getting to the point. <laughs> All of this leftover zoning legacy and the way that we used to do things doesn't allow for housing today. It's a lot of what we have C2, uh, so our, our commercial kind of high density uh, or high intensity uh, zoning. And so what you would want to do is go through a process of rezoning and say, I don't want to be C2 zoning anymore. I want to be a zoning district that allows me to continue all of my commercial uses because that's what's making me money and paying my bills right now. But I also want to be able to do housing. And that housing could look like a variety of types, but I need to be able to fit that in with what I'm doing already. And we have zoning categories that will let you do that. So you would just want to rezone. And then if you brought it to us and, you're, and somebody did like not that long ago, they said, hey, my property is zone C2 and I want it to be urban thoroughfare. And urban thoroughfare allows for that combination of housing and commercial uses. And so the city council said yes to that and they were right on College Avenue. And it was like, this is actually our goal. You're helping us to implement our goal to be able to see a mix of uses including this critical housing. And so then we kind of get to the point of, okay, well, you're asking, you know, well, what should come first? We need to start looking at, well, does the city want to go through that effort for everybody? Again, not because we're going to only housing allowed on College Avenue, but because we want housing to also be allowed on mm -hmm. College Avenue. So it gives you more options rather than fewer options. And that's, um, I think, something that we're probably going to be looking at here shortly because... One, we need more housing. <laughs> we need it to be available in places. And if you want to be able to make that transit corridor to have those options available to you, we have to get houses closer to it. And that's a way that we could at least begin that process. And it's something that the city can have a say in. So rather than who owns property and what they do with their property, um, we have the ability to preemptively say, hey, we want to make sure that if you want to, you are able to do this with your property and we're not going to put... Uh, that that zoning barrier in the in the way that's kind of left over from the nineteen probably in the nineteen sixties honestly. Yeah, and you're bringing up housing, which is another big topic that we wanted to hit on because affordable housing is you know a big deal, and we're growing fast. Prices have shot up, and it's not just here; it's nationwide, literally everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. But acutely here as well, we have a strong economy generally. Yep. Uh, we have a nice place to live. People want to be here, and that's awesome. But that comes with increased costs, and so some people who are struggling are struggling even more now. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, how can we get more more stuff built, which is part of what you just described, and what other aspects of affordable housing are working here, and what what where do we have areas for growth? Oh, okay. so this is, I'm going to get back into some planner math uh, and also a little bit of census math. And so um, I heard the other day, uh, and, and this sounds right, that we're currently growing about 36 new people a day in Northwest Arkansas. So that's not just Fayetteville. Fayetteville is not 36 new people a day. By comparison, I was living in Austin at a time that 171 people a day were moving to Austin. Wow. And that yeah. is not to diminish what we're experiencing here. That's just to say we have ways to to either like very closely estimate or to understand when we say we're growing, what does that mean in very, you know, very specific number terms? And so if Northwest Arkansas is adding 36 people a day, some of those people are coming to Fayetteville 365 days a year. Oh, that's a lot of people. So I, I'm currently anticipating that we have a couple thousand people moving to Fayetteville every year. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The census says that we have uh, on average 2.2 people per household. And so we have a thousand new households, let's say coming to Fayetteville every year. So we need a thousand new units of housing just to keep up with that. And that's not happening. 
Well, funny enough, is it? if you look at our permit numbers, we're on average permitting about a thousand house units of housing between multifamily, single family, mm. townhouses, duplexes. About a thousand uh, units of housing are being permitted in the city of Fayetteville every year and have for the last several years. Now, here's where I need more information. I'm like telling y'all about all my tricks. Like, <laughs> here's how to be a long range planner. Um, oh, but I that's love good because. <laughs> Anybody, I was telling somebody, I'm like the 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 kind of like chef gusto of, you know, the movie Ratatouille. It's like, I'm the chef gusto of long-range planning. <laughs> Anybody can be a long-range planner. You just have to know how to do it. You get a plan. And you get a plan. <laughs> and then you're the Oprah plan. plan. You get a plan. Everybody gets a plan. It's like great <laughs> fun, right? Um, but if if we have about a 1,000 households un- moving here, so we need about a 1,000 units of, of housing a year, and we're issuing that many permits, you would think like, oh, you're good. But... We don't know that all of those permits are being completed because believe it or not, somebody will go through the process of submitting a building permit and then before they can get started, something will happen and the permit won't get completed. So what I am still working on getting all the data together on is how many of those are being completed annually. Because if we're issuing about a thousand permits on average annually, but we're only completing about half of those, then we're not getting those thousand units a year we need. We're only getting 500. So then we're in a deficit, right? And then there's lots of ways to that. Okay, well, then why is that? Is it because people aren't building here? Or is it because we're making things take too long? Are our regulations too difficult? Is there not enough land available? Are people in Fayetteville not selling their properties so that they can be redeveloped? Well, that's a real thing, right? Because yeah. we don't sit here and force people to, you know, you must build housing on. No, like people are making these choices in the marketplace. And that's not really something that we are in the middle of, right? We're looking more at like, did you submit a permit? Did you follow all the rules? If you didn't, why not? Can you make this change? Can you make this edit? Okay, that's still not meeting building code. Oh, you have to have the variance for that. Like, we're looking at things like that. We're not looking at... How many are Airbnbs versus housing? We do look at that. So uh, I can tell you that, too. Let's let's do Airbnbs in a second. Okay. So anyway, so we have a 1,000 people moving here, or a 1,000 households moving here, and we need a 1,000 housing units built annually. And so I... I think we're issuing the permits to keep up with that, but I don't know if everybody's completing their permits to keep up with that. So do we have some lag there or or we're just not like fully fulfilling that demand? But here's where it gets a lot more tricky. So last year, an additional 1,800 students landed in Fayetteville in the fall of 2022. And they landed here in the space of one week. And that was 1,800 more students than they had the previous year. So it's 1,800 more people who need housing. And... That's kind of on top of people who are moving here for non-university uh, student reasons. And so people like me who are moving here because jobs are available and we really want those jobs because those are cool, awesome jobs and we want to be able to do that work. Um, our spouses are coming with us. Our kids are coming with us. Our parents are coming with us. Maybe our friends are coming with us. And so when you have that growth and you think about 36 people coming to the region a day, that is like, oh, that's a trickle and it, it accumulates into a lot of people, but at least it's kind of like they're not all coming at once. When the university ups its enrollment, they all come here at once. And so when you have an additional almost 2,000 people landing here in the space of one week, it's like a, a, a person like bomb exploded, right? Mm-hmm. And then you are competing, like we have non-student households competing with student households for housing. And then you have very, very disparate financial resources in the marketplace because you have students who are coming that do not have family financial resources with them, who might be coming on a scholarship and who might be really struggling to find housing that they can afford. So affordable housing is not just for people who are working full-time jobs. It's also for students. And we can get more into that if y'all want to, but um, students also need housing that does not cost burden them so that they have long-term success options available to them, right? And they're not going to be like sunk for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. by their student experience. Like that's not something that we want for people to, to be burdened for the rest of their life by that. Um, so we have a lot of people in the marketplace, some who have very little opportunity to acquire a place to live and some who have outsized resources and can acquire just about any place that they want to live. And that might be students who have uh, parents with a lot of financial means who are even able to purchase houses mm-hmm. for their students to live in while they're here. And then they might think, well, that will make a good second home for us in Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. And that really happens. We get those phone calls, right? People are purchasing second and sometimes even third homes in Fayetteville related to their students attending oh school gosh. here. Um, yeah, I, I am aware of third home purchases. Um, and so 
then you have like a lot of people who are already here like upset by this, right? Because right. those those resources feel completely outsized and feel overwhelming compared to, um, hey, you know, my partner and I, or just I by myself, I'm working these jobs and we're just trying to make rent and here's what I can afford. Otherwise, you know, I've really, I've got to give up this thing that are, is important to me or I'm not able to save or vacation is out of my reach because my rent's gone up. And so these are having like really substantial impacts on people's people's lives, not only because it impacts their finances, but it also impacts where their opportunities to live are. So when people don't have choice over where they live or the, or the type of housing that they have or in, in, you know, really bad circumstances, people don't even have a choice for housing. Uh, which a lot of our community is facing, then these are kind of, you know, the kind of things that are really stressing our community out. So if the university is going to continue to grow, we're going to continue to have students coming in that are going to need housing, but they're coming in all at once. And so if the university grows by a couple of thousand students a year, we're not producing to, you know, another thousand units of housing in one week at the end of summer, right? We're producing it, you know, over a period of time that may be like three years. And so that's where hopefully that helps to explain the stresses that everybody is feeling because we're not producing, even though we're producing a lot of new apartment complexes, uh, people are building those. You, you can see them under construction, especially around the university. They're not coming online fast enough. And so that's where I've got some catch up to do because the uh, American Community Survey Estimates, which are part of the U.S. Census, come out annually. The census is every 10 years. The ACS is every one year. And they're lagging behind, um, primarily due to COVID-related reasons. They just put out Fayetteville's 2022 population number, and we're halfway through 2023. <laughs> so that data is lagging as well. But we're sitting at 99, I think it's 99,245 people. And so we grew quite a bit from 2021 to 2022. And all of a sudden, what looked like us keeping up with housing unit production, we're no longer keeping up. Right. We are now growing beyond our our production of housing units. And so that's what you're seeing um, in kind of combination with a number of other things, which include investment properties, mm -hmm. um, which you've heard probably a lot about. But that's so that's kind of some background on that, why you're seeing that stress. So what do we do as a city um, and what are we doing as a city? We look at exactly things like what's our housing unit production? Are there ways to streamline the process? What kind of housing are we getting? Um, where are we getting it? What are our needs? And so is there kind of a, a way that we can make things uh, kind of faster through the pipeline uh, that's within our control and, and some of it's not? Uh, but is there something within our control that we can look at doing or are there resources that members of our communities need to be able to either stay in housing or to achieve housing? And that runs a spectrum from people who currently are unhoused to people who have, you know, the grandest homes in the town available to them. And then also it looks like getting into like an even finer grain of detail. Even if we are producing enough housing, we're increasingly not producing housing that is available to people in lower income ranges. Right, yeah. And so we may have enough housing units, but we may have them higher in terms of cost than people are able to achieve. And so then how do we look at what it would take to produce housing at a lower cost level to meet more of our community's needs? Because it doesn't matter if you have enough housing if it's not in the right price range and people can't access it. I agree. And that that's a wonderful that's a wonderful answer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I feel like it was pretty detailed, but we have to get really detailed and we yeah. have to get really specific because this is too difficult of a problem to tackle if we're not going to talk specifics because then you're just talking kind of ideas and concepts and, and not like actionable um, things that you can do to, to influence or, or, you know, mitigate that. Well, speaking of actionable, I'm always a big fan of actionable tips for people who are listening. If somebody's passionate about this and wants to get involved and wants to be part of a solution to create more affordable housing, do you have any thoughts on organizations or meetings they can attend or ways to just sort of get involved and do something to help? Call me. Um, <laughs> call me with all your ideas. I want to hear them. Uh, so there's uh, probably a few different ways to do that. Um, you know, the city, the city is definitely looking at this on a number of fronts. 
but we don't currently have, uh, so there's like not, there's not a housing plan for the city. We have, we have a lot of plans, but we don't have a housing specific plan. Um, and I don't know if we need one or not, honestly, because we're going to have to make some decisions about how does the city intervene in this space and, and what does that look like? And the council's certainly considering that. So what I think would be really helpful, um, one, it, honestly, people can contact me. They can call me. They can email me if they've got questions, if they've got ideas. Um, there are a couple of, it depends on kind of how you want to be involved. There are a number of nonprofits that are working on providing shelter uh, to our community members who don't currently even have shelter. Uh, uh, or at least reliable shelter available. And if you're thinking it's like starting to get really hot. Um, so that becomes a more urgent need, especially in the summer and in the winter when we have got extreme temperatures and, and people need re relief from that. And so if you volunteer with a place that uh, is focused on providing shelter, um, then I think that could be really helpful in, in meeting kind of, you know, that part of our community's needs. Um, we do have a few different housing focused groups um, but I am not entirely sure where everybody's role is. I think we're still trying to figure that out. Something that I did just hear um, and, and kind of just got via email is the Northwest, I think it's the Northwest Arkansas uh, Regional Planning Commission. They've got a workforce housing group. Mm -hmm. I think that workforce housing group is actually starting to actively call for ideas on housing. And I think they're looking to form a group. So I would check into that and see um, about that. because I think I just got an email on it. Um, and then also um, a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of policy decisions for the city of Fayetteville are going to be made by our city council. And so people have the opportunity to reach out to their city council members and share ideas, share solutions. If you've seen something be really successful in another city, we love to see what other people have tried, whether it succeeded, whether it failed. Um, you know, giving our council members great ideas to work from is always really helpful. Um, I don't think we have a specific committee on housing that I could recommend to everybody yet. But like I said, if, if you can't find anywhere else to go, you're welcome to share your ideas with me or reach out to me and I'd be glad to talk about it. Thank you. I, I want to come back real quickly to the Airbnb stuff, mainly because Ooh, yeah. a lot of people, for right or wrong, blame Airbnb or short-term rentals on the housing crisis. And I'm curious to hear, what is the actual impact of that? Is it is it much smaller than people think, or is it actually as bad as people say it is? And, and I know there's been some changes in Fayetteville in terms of the number of permits that are being allowed now. And is that a direct response to some of this? So uh, I think if people are having bad experiences, yes, they're generally having those bad experiences. And that is in a number of ways. So um, what, we, what we've heard certainly is that uh, when people have a lot of short-term rentals in their neighborhood, the common vacancy of those properties is really concerning um, because rather than having consistent neighbors, you have people in and out or what seems to happen quite frequently is there's just nobody there. Mm -hmm. And so trash may not be addressed successfully or, you know, property upkeep may not be happening or there's just kind of not that like eyes and attention on the property, especially if the Airbnb owner or operator is not local. And so we've heard a lot of concerns about concentrations of short-term rentals in neighborhoods that kind of leave these rows of vacant homes or what feel like, you know, several vacant homes together. Um, and that causes a lot of concern. And that's something that I understand people being concerned about. So that's not not a big deal. That is a big deal. Um, we've also, you know, sometimes when people use short-term rentals, especially maybe if it's a game day weekend or certain times of the year where there's a lot of gatherings, people might want to throw parties there. That's not permitted, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that people don't do it. And so if you're ex having an experience where people are like partying really hard at this house down the street and there's not somebody that you feel is available to be accountable for that, that can be extremely upsetting and frustrating and also really disruptive. So people are having those experiences also. Something that we hear as well, and I don't know if this is still the case, but I know it was something we were hearing um, quite a bit of last year, was that so people would uh, intentionally sell their property to someone who wanted to operate it as a short-term rental because they could get more money for it. Because there are a lot of uh, circumstances in which the income from a short-term rental can exceed a long-term renter uh, on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. And so there's a strong financial incentive to put it in the Airbnb market instead of the long-term rental market so that people can take advantage of that financial uh, opportunity there. And then, you know, people selling property at a higher rate to do that, that means your comps are going up. 
right? When you're, you're, when you're kind of looking at buying property. And so, oh, well, everybody around you is going for this high level because everybody's doing it in this investment basis or kind of these investment backed, uh, you know, financial uh, kind of basis. Then for someone who just wants to purchase a home because they want to live there full time, your comps are possibly forcing you out of the market, right? It's like not a good thing. So there's a lot of ways that that's impacting our community. In terms of total number, uh, we have approximately 392. I said approximately. It's a super specific number. <laughs> that's the number that I knew of June 6th. Uh, so I haven't got an update uh, yet. I will have that by next Thursday for our city council. But uh, So as of June 6th, we had 392 uh, short-term rental licenses for non-owner-occupied properties, and we call those Type 2s. If you don't live there full-time, it's a Type 2 short-term rental. It's a Type 2 short-term rental business license. And if you're in a residential zoning, you have to go to our planning commission to get approval for that through a conditional use permit. So there's quite a few steps that you have to go through to get the okay for that. So out of those almost 400 that we have operating uh, that are not owner-occupied, uh, that's not everybody in Fayetteville who's operating a short-term rental. And so we appear to have somewhere around 700 to 750 to kind of our, our best ability to determine through um, some web-based services that kind of like, uh, you know, go through the internet looking for these things and, and try to identify them for us. Uh, so that's maybe 700. If you look at our housing stock, um, our current cap uh, and the cap that the council is considering adjusting right now is uh, our current cap is 2% of our total housing units according to the American Community Survey estimates. That ACS that I talked about, it provides us with an annual population estimate. It also provides us with an annual housing unit estimate. And they're usually pretty close to our building permit data, but not exact because that's coming from federal sources. And they're not calling me, asking me, right? So they don't give me a call and like check in with me and, and make sure their data is right. So usually we're like maybe not quite the same, but that's what our code says we're using as that metric. And so, um, you know, if we're at 40,000 housing units, then that means 800 of them is 2% of our total housing units. And so if we have just below that, less than 2% of our housing units are currently short-term rentals. And that doesn't mean there's no impact on the market, but it also means it's less than 2% of our total housing units, as far as we can account for, are being used as short-term rentals. So I think a lot of the impacts that you're seeing is not because those are a huge proportion of our market, but I think those particular properties have outsized impacts for what they mm -hmm. are, not only because they're in causing, you know, property value inflation, but they're also um, causing neighborhood level effects that are really unpleasant for, for longtime neighbors to be part of. And then you are, so let's say you're taking almost 800 units of housing out of the long-term rental market even. And if you think about these 1800 college students that are coming so then you start to go oh okay yeah. that's how it starts to impact yeah uh, and and why we're probably feeling that for short-term rentals so the council is currently considering whether to lower the cap down to 475 business license uh, that would be issued and so that still gives about 80 above where we're at right now so it still gives some room for people to come into compliance for all those few hundred that seem to be operating, but that we can't account for uh, in our in our permit system and our business license registry. But um, so that's why they're looking at bringing it down, because um, Fayetteville has been pretty clear that um, our, our our residential community really feels that, like, we have enough. We don't need more of these. And I think our council is really considering that feedback as, as they take this into consideration. Well, one one question I had in that vein is, is too, that it seems like part of this could be location based. You know what I'm saying? Like, yep. Most of those units where the issues are are probably in these really desirable, walkable areas that we're trying to create that ultimate sense of place and sense of community. So I can imagine that a lot of these Airbnbs that people are frustrated about aren't even necessarily clustered around the town square. You know, they're not it's not as big of a deal, I guess, if it's like two out of a hundred story hundred unit complex. Right. But if you're saying, oh, 10 of the historic cute little cottages that are right in walking distance to the square are being used as Airbnbs. And that kind of takes away from some of that neighborhood feel and that sense of place that you're trying to encourage right in the heart of the city where all of these developments are happening to make people more walkable and more community focused. So I could see where that's possibly part of the pushback as well. It's just purely a sense of, well, some of these neighborhoods used to be considered some of the most affordable places in town. 
And now they're some of the most outlandishly expensive parts, in part because of the Airbnb frequency of the Airbnbs. There's definitely a lot um, in and around the downtown area. There's a pretty hefty concentration, but some neighborhoods that either have like um, what I guess is is really considered, I guess if you're a visitor, um, this is like good location. So maybe not like right downtown or like right on the edge of downtown, but maybe like fairly close or maybe it's just a very attractive neighborhood or has some other kind of amenity that is really desirable. Um, so something I'm thinking about, like we have so many mountain bikers that come to Fayetteville, yes. right? If you've got good proximity to a trail location or one of our mountains, mm -hmm. this could be, you know, like houses that are very close proximity that you don't even have to get in your car and load up your bike. You can hop on your bike and go. These could be like super constantly popular places, right? But we have heard that even outside of our downtown, there are neighborhoods that have high concentrations of mm -hmm. them. And, um, and it's been really really disruptive to the neighborhood and it's like places that might kind of surprise you mm -hmm. and these are locations that um, are not only in south fayetteville but i think even in west fayetteville we're seeing a few pockets of these where mm -hmm. people are like hey this is you know like why do i have so many in my neighborhood um and then it would kind of surprise you but you know not i think not every airbnb um or short-term rental situation is like one that's probably got a good chance for longevity. And so what we've noticed is that there's quite a bit of turnover in our business licenses. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing like a lot of growth in the number of total licenses that are active because it seems like a lot of people are falling out of the market for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that some of those are because the location's not quite as attractive to keep enough traffic for that to be your viable long-term option versus places that have close proximity to the university, which are so attractive certain mm -hmm. times of the year that that can carry them over even through the parts of the year that may not be as attractive. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, game day weekend yeah. hosting, um, I think, can bring in such significant money that you can afford to have a few months of low activity because you've made so much the rest of the year. And then that's like really outsized effects, right? Where it's, and then, you know, then if you've got vacant places for several months out of the year, that's also kind of part of what we're hearing yeah. and that people are kind of upset about is because now I've got vacant properties in my neighborhood when my, you know, hope and, and what is a real benefit of being a neighbor is having neighbors instead oh, yeah. of vacant places. And anybody who's read a Stephen King book is aware <laughs> of how scary these vacant properties can be. Absolutely. They're always haunted. Yeah. I'm curious to hear what are some of your, if you didn't have any barriers money-wise or anything else, what would be like a dream improvement to Fayetteville? Whether it's trails, transit, housing, just something, if you could just kind of click your heels and make something happen, what would that be? I would... Gosh, this is going to out me for the nerd that I am. <laughs> I would address all of our existing stormwater issues, and I would get that taken care of and brought up to speed. And I say that because, again, like new development comes under some pretty strict rules that uh, are in place to address the impacts of new development and the and how that affects our ability to manage stormwater. And you you have to you have to address it on site in a way that even a few years ago, we didn't have those requirements in place. So, so much of Fayetteville was developed at a time that we didn't have stormwater requirements. And there's a whole lot behind what the state is, is what the state requires us to do and to manage and, and how we need to do that and then best practices and then just like true community needs. When we have really significant rain events, and I'm talking about like four or five inches an hour, which can happen here. Um, these are rain events that have also never happened in our history. Mm -hmm. And that can be like really catastrophic for some folks in our community. And as we continue to have the impacts of those huge rain events, as we have all of this developed that, that didn't have to address, you know, stormwater on the property and it, it just keeps running off into other places, we're pretty far behind on the infrastructure needed to address that successfully. And some of the interventions that would be probably really successful, but are even more expensive than your standard way to address it. So if I didn't have any budget constraints and I could do it, I would go ahead and get that all addressed so that that was something that we could truly feel safe about and that every member of our community could have a sense of safety about because that's something that tends to be really disproportionate in who it affects. And that's something that I would love to see not have to be a burden on people when those heavy rain events happen. I love that. Thank you. And is there anything that we haven't covered that you really want to have people know about? Because we've talked a lot, a lot of stuff, and it's been really interesting, but is there just something that we just didn't even touch on that you're like, everyone has to know this? 
I think it's really important to know how to get in touch with people at the city who can answer your questions. And so um, I know it can be really frustrating if you call and you feel like you're just being tossed around from phone to phone to phone, or if you feel like you're not getting an answer or anything like that. So I don't, I don't want to ignore that like sometimes people feel discouraged or they feel like they did not have a, a good customer service experience. And it may be because the person that you ended up calling in the first place like truly didn't know where they we're supposed to send you so that you could get a successful outcome. Uh, they may not have been aware. Maybe they're new. Maybe, you know, a variety of reasons. Maybe the person to answer the question wasn't available or maybe they're out of the office unexpectedly. Um, so we do genuinely try to get people where they need to go. But I would really encourage you to figure out, like, if, if you find a need to contact the city and you contact the city and you don't feel like it was a very successful outcome, please don't give up because um, we really are there Um <laughs> we, we had a period of time here recently where we didn't have our phones for a couple of days. So, uh, you know, it's things like that, that sometimes they happen and, and that's not what I would consider like normal business. Right. And so that's why I try to make sure that I'm available to anybody who calls, whatever the reason is, if I can't answer your question, I'll either figure out the answer or I'll get back to you or I'll, I'll find somebody who, you know, I can forward you to, to answer the question. And if you feel like you're not being heard or if your ideas or concerns are not being seriously considered, just understand for a moment that we may have a completely different way of thinking about it and what you're proposing to us may be something that we're not either immediately able to address or that we're not sure how to address. But don't give up on us because sometimes it takes a little while to figure those things out. And so um, we're, <laughs> we're real people um, and we really want to help. Um, I didn't start out in the public sector. I started out in the private sector and I'm, I'm relatively new to the public sector. And I think it's really easy to kind of look at, at cities and city staffs and be like, oh, you know, and just make a lot of assumptions about maybe we're not so helpful or so courteous or so customer service oriented. That's not ever been my experience working on the public side. My experience has been working with a lot of really dedicated, but really, really busy people um, who are doing their best to, to keep up with everything in our rapidly growing city. And so if nothing else, give me a call and I'll see if I can help. That's the best. Thank you. Well, and in closing, we always like to ask people two questions. And the first one is, what is one simple thing that everyone in Fayetteville can do today to make it a better city moving forward? Um, continue your beautiful tradition of loving where you live because this is the basis of all of the good work that we do and all of the community-centered work that we do. So as our community loves each other and loves this place, that helps us to make those better decisions that express love, um, which is the best thing that we can do, I think. Oh, I love it. And then do you have any organizations that you'd like to shout out before we head out? Just my team in planning and engineering, um, honestly, uh, they have worked through a pretty substantial backlog of things the last few weeks uh, while we're kind of like coming back up to speed. And I really appreciate the colleagues that I work with because they give me the opportunity to work on the projects that I do. And they give me the opportunity to interact with our community. Um, it sometimes feels a little bit funny, like being a bit of a public face for, um, for my department, but also we're understanding that it's really important that people have someone they know they can contact. And so um, it takes a whole team to support the work that I do. And I don't think that they get enough credit for making my job possible. That's so nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. You're freaking hilarious. Oh, thank you. Well, what, what an honor to be on your podcast and to be able to share my work. Thank you. This, this has been wonderful. I, I can't wait for people to hear this. So yeah. I really appreciate your time. And we'll time. probably have you back at some point. Please do. Uh, <laughs> always more to discuss. All right. Well, well thank, thank you. you. <laughs>